newspaper men meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. The Media Project, a half hour of commentary and analysis, and on our, on our best days, even some insight into recent news media events, and we thank you for joining us. I'm Rex Smith, editor-at-large of the Times Union. This week, of course, with Dr. Alan Shartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, investigative journalist Rosemary Armeo, and longtime editor of the Saratogian, Barbara Lombardo, both Barbara and Rosemary teaching these days at the University of Albany, and so we will see in the course of this if they have any guidance and instruction for us all. But let us begin by thinking about this. This is our first show since the end of the Trump presidency. And so I think we ought to just each of us take a moment to think how we think the news media might change. What will be different in the news media ecosystem, let's say, in the post-Trump era? What's changed? Alan, you want to lead us off? What do you think is different? Well, there are a couple of things. First of all, we do know one thing, that since the Trump presidency and the election got into high gear, that CNN became the number one cable station. Now, I think you told me, Rex, a while back that Fox was. So something has changed. And if that's the case, there's been a realignment of what people were watching. I think Americans were very, very worried about Trump as he got wilder and crazier. So they switched to some of their media allegiances as a result of that. And it's interesting because I thought CNN really turned Uh, the corner. And in the beginning, I think they were very worried about what they said and how they said it. By the time it was all over, (laughs) I never saw anything like it. CNN was really giving it to Trump both barrels, and there were adjectives being used in every single time they mentioned him. (laughs) And they would call him out for every lie that he told specifically, and it was quite something. Whether or not, and this gets to your basic and very good question, whether or not People will continue to watch what they started to watch in the waning days of the Trump presidency will be a very interesting thing to see. Absolutely. Yes, that's correct. Fox is no longer number one in the 25 to 54 demographic, especially. And on some nights, CNN, on many nights, CNN has been number one among all channels, broadcast as well as cable. So, Rosemary, what else? What do you think is going to be different in the uh, aftermath of the Trump presidency? Yeah, I think Ellen is right, but that's a little bit more to do with us, how we will change in the aftermath, not what uh, the media will do. I I think the media is going to be less likely to pull punches for the sake of politeness and conservatism, you know, calling a lie a lie. Got a lot easier. Trump gave us a lot of practice in that. So in some ways, it's harder for politicians than it used to be to get gloves off treatment from the media. On the other hand, I think Biden and the new administration is going to get a incredibly long honeymoon this time. He has a press secretary who has brought back the daily briefing. 
who made a pledge to truth and transparency. In his inaugural address, he talked about ending, rooting out misinformation. And I think he will have allies in that quest with the media. So he's going to get a break, I suspect, from the media at first. With Trump gone, that's a huge hole in our daily news agenda. So I think Barbara, maybe she can talk about this more. She brought this up that we're going to go back to searching for stories. What should we be writing about and investigating that we have not? Is it going to be more on the opioid crisis? Definitely more on public health. It'll be, uh, we, we haven't seen anything about the backgrounds of the people that Biden is bringing into Washington. There's going to be tons of reporting on that that will be of interest. And on top of all of this, you're asking the question, not only at the start of a new administration, but with the continuation of a pandemic, that means many of our usual activities are suspended. That's going to affect coverage as well. All right. So uh, return to just the usual political distortions rather than outright lies. That's good. (laughs) And a different agenda for daily news coverage. All right. Barbara Lombardo, what do you think is going to be different going forward now? Well, one of the things that won't change is that millions of people don't trust the mainstream media. That's not changing. So one of the things that I hope does change is that local media, in particular community media, take this as an opportunity to rethink of who is our audience, who's the audience that we've been missing, how can we reach out to that audience, because we don't want to just keep talking to the choir. News isn't going to reach the people who really need to hear what is true. Local, regional newspapers can use this new administration as an opportunity to reach out to their communities and have public forums and roundtables. Maybe you would invite a room of Trump supporters or a room of Black Lives Matters people or a room of Democrats. What are the issues our community should be covering? And use these to create a blueprint of what the priorities are going to be for the year ahead. That's what I would be doing if I was still running my newspaper. And I think that there's got to be stories. Bethany Bump, one of your reporters, Rex, would tell my journalism classes, use the micro to tell the macro. And she does a great job of that for your newspaper. Rosemary, you mentioned the opioid crisis and what's been happening with that during the pandemic or the reluctance for people to get the vaccine. So she and others on your staff have focused in on the stories about real people that tell the bigger story and it's something people can relate to. I think we have to do a lot more of that. You know, it's a very interesting point you raised, Barbara, that the appetite that we have seen for coverage of Donald Trump has so overwhelmed the news media. I mean, there's just been so much. Four years, two impeachments, families separated at the border, a pandemic that's killed 400,000 Americans, the economy is smashed, insurrection at the Capitol. All of that in Washington has so overwhelmed the public with that kind of news that maybe a focus, a relentless focus on what is local, what matters to people, what is in their neighborhoods and their communities, maybe that might help to rebuild the trust, which is at at an all-time low, of course, the percentage of people who trust the media, and perhaps not having a president who continually tells people that you're being lied to by the media might help as well. Maybe that's even a cause for optimism. I like to be optimistic, but I'm always skeptical. Yeah. I don't see it happening. Local news has never had the allure of national news of big stories, unless they're so sexy and scandalous that they become national stories. And also, let us not forget how depleted our resources for covering local news have become. So the idea of going out and doing great work that will bring back new readers seems especially difficult at this time. 
I certainly agree with him. It is difficult, but if you can't tell people what does this mean to me, it's not going to touch their life, I don't think. You know, no. you've got Rush Limbaugh still talking about the terrible things that are going to be happening under this administration, oh. telling lies. That's not going to change, that's for sure. But I do think the question of how we prioritize our stories are quite interesting. We had 400,000 Americans die of COVID so far, and we expect it to go to 500,000. And yet, every night, Trump led, and the 400,000, think about that, more than World War II or anything else, took a back seat. Because what else are you going to say except that people are dying? So I think while it's terribly, terribly important and depressing, it is interesting that people make choices. People make choices, you mean, as to what news they want to consume. Yes, that's right. Yeah. You know, if you watch the local cable channels, you see an awful lot about girls' basketball. So in other words, people want to know about girls' basketball. And so these people aren't doing it because they want to make people watch these stories. It's because they know people are watching them. Hmm. Let's take, for example, the opioid epidemic. We have seen a huge upturn. 12 months from mid-2019 to 2020, 81,000 people died of opioid use. In the 10 Western states, a 98% increase in opioid deaths. This pandemic has been terrible for overdose deaths, for opioid use disorder, and it is not abating. That is affecting every community. But even as we try to turn toward that issue locally, and at the time, Gene, we've made a major effort to put together a community coalition to address this issue, and we have consciously put that issue on the front page, there I think Alan has a point that it still doesn't have the resonance for people as the sort of go get them, slap them, hit them politics that so resembles sports coverage that people tend to pay attention to. How do you get people's attention for what is significant as opposed to what just grabs their gut? One of the values of what makes a story, and I'm teaching this to beginning students, is newness. It's novelty. And it is very difficult, always has been, to cover ongoing stories. Alan talks about COVID. I feel like I already know that a lot of people are dead and the number keeps going up. I feel like I already know that opioids are destroying the community and wrecking havoc on families that didn't deserve it, blah, blah, blah. It's so hard to come up with a novel angle. It's not how I'm connected to that story. It's that I feel like I've already known it. And I could point out the Afghanistan war, which went on for still really technically is waging. We still have people there. And you can't, you don't see stories every single day about who's dead and why. Some places tried. They print the name every day. The following people died, according to the Department of Defense, and they'd run a list. But the fact is, it's an old story. We're we're mired down in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. I got it. Let's move on. And that's what we're really wrangling with. Not that people don't care, not that they don't see how it affects them, but just that I already know this what else is going on. So we're looking for fresh ways to say the same thing. Or is there a way that we can try to give people a more fresh take on stories that are really important? Look, there are going to be great changes in the Biden administration. Uh, There's going to be obviously a tremendous focus on climate change. Let's take that as an example. This is the existential dilemma of our time. We have climate change, one of the four huge tent poles that the Biden administration must address. If you're a local editor, a local news director, producer, how are you going to focus attention on what is such a tremendously important story? You're helped by virtue of the fact that you now have an administration paying attention to it that at least recognizes that it's real. 
But I don't know how that story, for example, is something that you can day after day, as Rosemary says, tell people, well, here's this also, here's this. How do you get people's attention to what really matters, that kind of thing? Well, it's so arrogant of you, Rex. The truth is that you, you (laughs) you assume you know what's the most important thing to people. You put on the front page of the paper, quite correctly, the opioid crisis. And you say, because we know how important this is, we're going to put it there, but people don't pay the attention that they ought to. So part of it is just understanding that people will do what people are going to do. I mean, the New York Post certainly knows it. The Daily News certainly knows it. And they follow that. And then a responsible paper like the Times Union, of which you're one of the head editors, has a lot of problems because you are responsible and because people may think that's not what I want to hear. At the risk of sounding like Rex's yes man, I don't think that what he was saying was the least bit arrogant, but he was trying to explain that the role of an editor is to decide what ought to be written about and published and where it ought to be published and how it ought to be published and how often. And for something like the opioid crisis, so maybe you really can't have something every day, but you want to keep the presence out there you know, every maybe a few times a month. I understand what Rosemary is saying about the difficulty of finding a fresh angle, but on the most down-home levels, people talk about things that are affecting their lives, and there are community chats, and there are social networks within different age groups, and they're talking about, you know, in Saratoga, a popular person died, and it was for many people the first time that they actually personally knew someone who died from COVID. And there's been a lot of discussion about that and just the shock of having somebody you know die and how that hits home and how that's becoming worse and worse. I do think that editors need to be more arrogant. I do think that there is a role for curators, and that's missing in our media landscape today. So hooray, Rex, keep looking. And I do think that there are sweeping grand new angles that we can bring to new stories. Look at the slavery project done by the New York Times. It was a whole new look on American history, which is 200 years old, and it got enormous viewers. There are ways to present news with video and audio that we never had before that put a new face on old stories. And Barbara is also right. You can go on the micro level and find these small little things that affect a small group and bring it to a larger audience is also affected. But all of that takes resources, deep reporting really deep reporting with curious reporters who know how to talk to people and know how to bring their stories to a wider audience. That's huge. Well, let me just say, arrogance may have been a little strong, and it may have been a little sarcastic, and it may have been a little positive in a way, saying, look, you know better, and we know you know better, but you you can't shove it down people's throats, period. There's a point to that. There really is. But at the same time, I have to plead guilty to something. You know, here I am talking about climate change. And during my years as editor of the Times Union, I spent almost 18 years leading the newsroom. Almost a year ago, I stepped back from that. And that's why I'm now called editor at large. But during those years, I did not have a reporter specifically assigned to climate change. We had an environment reporter who, who did a great job of covering those stories. But the notion of finding the micro stories, as, as Barbara quotes our fine Bethany Bump talking about in terms of health, 
healthcare coverage, finding those micro stories to tell the big story. What would happen if every American newsroom, instead of saying, well, we've got a reporter to cover Schenectady and here's somebody to cover Troy and here's somebody to cover Great Barrington, what would happen if everyone had a climate change reporter, if everyone had an immigration reporter, if everybody really looked at the issues that are most fundamentally threatening us that we need to deal with, our opioid desk reporter, and really said, keep finding new ways to tell this story, tell the stories of the real people who are affected by it. I wonder if we just need to realign what we think of as newspaper beats instead of focusing so much on crime and so much on political ins and outs. And we really need to come at some of these topics more broadly. And I'm sorry, more reality, specifically. So we're talking about would be in reality part of somebody's beat. It would not be somebody's entire beat. There wouldn't be the staffing for that sort of thing. But I, I agree about rethinking how we approach what it is we're covering so that somebody's – and you do do it topically with certain things having to do with health. Climate change could fold into somebody's beat where they need to be thinking about that, coming up with story ideas, writing about that. Black Lives Matter, what happened to all the review of police departments and what's going on with that in the communities? We don't want to let that fall away. Newsrooms have long known that there's a magic to the beats you assign. I worked in places that made shopping malls a beat, for example, or another place that made the black community a beat, or another one that made, like you said, just climate change that was in Florida, a beat. And suddenly the paper was flooded with stories on those topics because you had someone dedicated to it and thinking about it, aging as a beat rather than a community. The problem, though, is it takes time to develop the sources and the stories. It takes talented reporters. It takes resources. And, Barbara, you can't do that as part of a beat. You can't have a topic beat and a, and a geographic beat. You're going to cover school board meetings and find out cool stories about opioids? I don't think so. You might not get to every school board meeting, that's for sure. All I know is that when the sirens are heard on the hill here in Great Barrington, we want to know from our beat reporter what those sirens were, and what happened in our neighborhood. And I think it's very nice that we have an intellectual approach here that is emerging amongst you, Rex and Barbara, uh, about, <laughs> about, about assigning, you know, substantive areas like climate change. But we want to know what that siren was. I was in Great Barrington the other day driving into the edge of the community, and, Alan, you just about clouded my car you were turning a corner uh, up the hill toward your house, and you just about took me out. So we, the Damn. sirens were almost coming for us. Damn, I missed. <laughs> Damn, I missed. <laughs> yeah, so too on bad. A, on a national level, the TV stations are going to be looking for something to fill their hours and hours of uh, suddenly where there's not craziness to report on every day. And Rosemary is right when she's talked about how difficult, time-consuming, expensive it is to find real news to fill those spots with. On the, on the local level, I learned a lesson as an editor when I have our staff do kind of local in-depth report on some issue four times a year, and then my staff would get cut, and we switched it to twice a year because you still had to fill the newspaper with news. And finally, I lost one more reporter, and we could barely do something once a year. But my lesson was not to stop doing that kind of story, even if you can only plug away and do it once a year or once every nine months, you still need to devote what you can to telling issues that are important to people. 
You know, you raise an important issue with respect to the use of opinion coverage. One of the changes about Fox News, what we were talking about early in the show, Fox News has now changed an hour of news coverage in the evening, the 7 p.m. Eastern hour, and moving it to opinion coverage, more like their Hannity coverage and so on. They're going to find another opinion host. Opinion coverage is cheap. You know, it's just somebody sitting in a studio talking as opposed to actually having a reporter out on the street or if you're television, having producers actually producing video. And I wonder if we may unfortunately see a bad trend be exacerbated and if it becomes aped by the local media, if opinion is going to become a larger share of our coverage further dividing the audience into those segments that want to find the opinion that they share, if that's going to become one of the sad effects of the declining media infrastructure, that the substitution of opinion for news, if that isn't going to be one of the things that happens. Is anybody surprised that Fox News, who are certainly going to take an anti-Biden position, took the news, the so-called, and i because I think there's plenty of opinion there, too, the so-called news off and replacing it with the Hannity's and the other guys, it is just par for the course, and it's disgusting. I wonder, with the fact of the matter that without Fox News, the insurrection at the Capitol uh, would not have happened. Trump couldn't have incited sedition without the help of Fox News. That's a headline of a piece written by the columnist Max Boot, who makes the argument that perhaps Fox News ought to meet the same fate as Donald Trump's Twitter feed and so on, because Fox News has been just as – well, certainly with more power, more clout, but just as guilty of inciting with the lack of of factual coverage. I wonder if it really deserves a place on these social media platforms or if they're going to – if social media is going to get more responsible about not tolerating lies, if maybe Fox ought to have a similar fate. It would still have its broadcast outlet, however, and I suspect that's where it gets its clout. If you took Fox off of social media, would that really make a big difference to it? And to take it off of the airwaves. That would be unprecedented. That would be also something I would be opposed because you could go after CNN or MSNBC for the same sorts of reasons. And once again, we get all tied up with censorship and regulation and social media. The problem on social media is from groups speaking directly and individuals speaking directly as Trump did. And I I think that's the big, a big story. I was going to say the big media story, but it's bigger than that. We got a call here at the House from the Republican National Committee on Inauguration Day asking if we were afraid that big tech was censoring the voices of conservatives. They're taking a a little survey, of course, a very biased question. So you can just see what's coming. It's going to be the newest battle in the culture wars. And that needs to be covered with a with a really clear eye, both opinion, people writing about it, pro and con, and reporters reporting on the effects of what happens when big tech doesn't really take the job of editing responsibly. It is interesting that uh, according to one survey, the research firm Zignal Labs found that online misinformation about election fraud fell by 73 percent after Donald Trump and his key allies were suspended from social media. So if you have a few key sources for misinformation, and the social media at least take a swat at that, 
if the social media executives were as responsible as journalistic executives, that is, we try as editors to not put untruths into our pages. We make judgments about what is true and what is not, and we try not to publish what is untrue. If the social media behaved similarly, it would affect their bottom line. They wouldn't have as much traffic, but it would perhaps save democracy. And shouldn't we be asking, shouldn't we be exercising consumer influence on the people who run Facebook, Twitter, and so on to say, this is where you need to be behaving, not through government regulation, but rather through consumer pressure? That seems to be a possibility. Yeah, but Rex, don't you think that to some degree that it was a matter of just doing what was right, saving the democracy, kicking this bum out, as opposed to bottom line? Say that again? Uh, Stephen's mother used to say to him all the time, my friend Stephen, Stephen, just do the right thing. And that was way before, you know, any of the movies or anything like that. And I'd say, how does he know the right thing? He knows, and they knew too. I sort of like the idea of congressional investigations into what big tech is doing and why. Now, that's different than making a law telling them what they have to do. But it's putting a spotlight that no single media, even the, even the New York Times could not do that. It's the bottom spot and say, Zuckerberg, what happened here? What did you do this? Why did you do this? And that ties in with informing consumers about what they need to know on what big tech is doing. That would require congressional leaders who actually know something about social media and how media in general works. We don't have that right now. All right. Well, we're talking about the changes that are coming here or that have come. At least six major news networks have assigned women to lead their White House coverage of the Biden administration, raising the profile of female journalists. So what is going to be the change you think that we will see in the media as a result of the increasing prominence of women in key media positions as opposed to men? My first inclination is to say you won't see a change. The women who covered the Trump White House were incredibly smart, informed, and aggressive. He would put them down. He would call them names. He would walk out on them, and they just stood their ground. They were magnificent, and those women deserve the promotions that they have gotten. Maggie Hagerstrom of the New York Times was a magnificent White House reporter. I was going to say the only one, but Ashley Parker and the rest of the crew at the Washington Post also got behind the scenes. I'm not sure that you are going to see a difference. Good reporters are, aren't we all the same? Barbara, are women the same as men as reporters? I agree with Rosemary. I think that the women who have gotten these promotions earned them over the last few years, that there's a really great pool of male and female reporters. And what I would keep in mind is that while their coverage is great, the real reporting happens behind the scenes. It happens with the people who are not out in the front all the time when they have to do the in-depth reporting and the investigations and requesting documents and going through research and analyzing data. That that could be being done by men or women that are not the stars of the, of the networks and the TV and the uh, newspapers. So I don't know that I'll see a difference. Absolutely. Let's hear it for the producers, not just those who front the stories. All right. That's all we have time for today. Yeah, it's too bad. Alan Shartok, Rosemary Armeo, Barbara Lombardo, and I'm Rex Smith. And we thank our producer, David Gustina. And thank you for joining us this week and hope you come back again for The Media Project. 
The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is editor-at-large of the Times Union. Barbara Lombardo is a journalism professor at the University at Albany and former executive editor of the Saratogian and the Troy Record. And Rosemary Armeo is an investigative journalist and former chair of the Department of Journalism at the University at Albany. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at W. WAMC.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>